Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. We are the church. The body of Christ. A people of every nation. Tribe and language. We are one. 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 Jesus prayed that we would be one. 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 So a world divided could see a people united. One in Him. One body. One spirit. One hope. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father. One. 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 Well, over the last few weeks, about six or seven weeks or so, we have been involved in a sermon series called One, where we are discovering how we can have unity in a world divided. And oh my goodness, It has just become more divided over the six weeks, hasn't it? Everywhere we look, we see division. And there's something in us that just longs for unity that that brings us together. And what we have discovered is that that is only available in God. It's that unique thing that we know as the body of Christ that many in the world don't know. And I believe when we live that out, that becomes the thing that the world wants as they see it in us. And we begin to demonstrate to the world what unity amid diversity looks like. I I love the bumper that we put together for this sermon series because all of those folks are ours. These are people that are a part of our church. So we are diverse. When we give our mission statement every week, it is a reality. We believe that God has placed this here to bring people of every generation and all kinds of backgrounds together to thrive in a relationship with Christ. And we've got every generation represented. We've got every background that you could ever imagine. And there is a sense of unity that has come together. Now, over the last few weeks, we have, uh, we've heard from different staff members as we have talked about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Today, we're going to look at that final component in the list that Paul gives us in uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, where he talks about one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I mentioned to you in our prayer time, it's not enough that we know God. We must also know about God. You see, it's our concept of God, what we know of God that impacts everything. What we know of God impacts the way we worship. Do you remember there's a story in the Bible when Jesus was traveling through Samaria and he met this woman at a well, a Samaritan woman at the well. We, in fact, we call the story the woman at the well because he met her there at the well. And it wasn't long after Jesus met her there at the well that they got into a spiritual conversation. And she said to him, she said, uh, I, I know this about you Jews. You believe that we are to worship God in a certain place or in a certain mountain. Now, what she was ultimately saying is, my understanding of God is that he's geographical. Her view of God was that, that, that it was confined to a 
place in geography. And Jesus responds, if you'll remember, and he said, no, 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 no. God is spirit. He's not confined to one place. He's not locked into one spot on the planet. God is spirit. And if we worship him, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, our concept of God impacts the way we worship. It doesn't make any difference if you are Methodist or Catholic or Baptist or Presbyterian. It doesn't matter what kind of shingle you hang on the door. If you're going to worship God, you're going to worship him in truth and in spirit. But did you know that your concept of God not only impacts the way you worship, it also impacts the way you live? John says that God is light, and in him is no darkness. In fact, he says that if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, and the truth is not in us. Now, when he says God is light, he's really talking about the moral perfection of God. He's ultimately saying this, God is holy. If you don't believe God is holy, if you don't believe that God cares about sin, then why should you? You see, your understanding of who God is impacts the way we live our life. That's why Peter says later on, be holy. And we could ask the question, why? And you know what he said? Because God is holy. If you understand God is holy and sin matters to God, then it's going to impact the way you live your life. So if we're going to talk about how we are to be unified and brought together in God, then maybe a good question that we could ask today is, what is that God like? What is this God like that brings the unity? What is our concept of God so that we can celebrate that and preserve that and hang on to that as we move forward? Well, to answer that question, I want to go to an Old Testament passage of Scripture that we don't look at very often. It's a little book in the back end of the Old Testament. So you probably would just go to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. The New Testament's the back part of the Bible, the front of the Bible. The Bible's contained two parts, Old Testament, New Testament. The word testament means covenant, Old Covenant, New Covenant. And it begins with Matthew. So if you go to Matthew and turn left, you're going to go back to some of the what we call minor prophets. And one of them is called Micah. Now, it's interesting because Micah, that the name Micah literally means who is like Jehovah. Now, what Micah is going to do in the last chapter of his small book, he's going to kind of play off of his name, and he's going to ask that same question, who is like Jehovah? And his description is really I, I think fascinating, helpful, beautiful. It, it allows us to, to, to find an understanding of what Paul was talking about when he says the thing that brings us together is that we have one God and Father. So what is this God like? Who is like Jehovah? Now, the first part of Micah, in the, the first six chapters, really, he talks about a God of wrath and a God of judgment. 
Um, and he talks about some of the challenges that the people are facing at that particular time. But when he comes to the end of the prophecy, he offers this rich, full description of who God is and who God is like. And, and in that description, he gives us three things. So, so these are the three things that I want you to kind of, kind of mentally write down or write down, and we're going to come back and unpack as we walk through the text together. Because what he's going to say to us is, okay, th- this understanding this is going to change the way we live our lives. He first of all says, you, you need to understand that, that he is a God of pardon, that our God forgives. Secondly, he's going to say that he is a God of power. And last, he's going to say he is a God of promise. Now, those three things, understanding those three things, when we understand them together, makes us unique. Even when we are different, it makes us unique, but the same. So with that in mind, look, if you will, at Micah chapter 7, and we're just going to look at verse 18 down through verse 20, the latter part of his writing, and he offers this great insight. Who is a God like you? Let's compare gods. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Well, with that in mind, let's just kind of talk for a few moments about those three things that Micah reveals to us in the text. He begins by talking about a God who is a God of pardon, who forgives, who is like our God. Well, let's just compare gods when we look at, at, the, at the world around us and, and we would say, who is like our God? Who pardons our iniquity? Who passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Micah literally offers this message of judgment and now stops to simply come to the end and say, but I want you to know what God's like. He delights in mercy. He has this amazing forgiveness, this love that is inexhaustible. Who compares to that? He just literally says, let's just compare God's. I mean, if you were to compare gods today, look at the religions of the world. Look, even throughout history, the gods of of the ancient Greek, the god uh, uh, of Egypt. Look, even today at at the religions of the world and how they understand and and perceive God. And, And suddenly as we compare, we begin to recognize that there is one glaring difference between the true God of Scripture and every other God worshiped in our world today. And that is the fact that the God of Scripture is a God who forgives our sin. No other God of any other religion does that. Have you ever noticed every other world religion, maybe they offer some help in how to live life now and some direction maybe for the future, but they offer no hope for the past. No one 
who says that this God can forgive your past. And so we're just kind of left to wander through life, hoping that we have appeased the God and somehow made them happy with ourselves and live a miserable existence. In the neighborhood that I live in, my, uh, I have a dog and um, a Weimaraner named Knox. And so we take Knox on walks on a regular basis. And my wife and I sometimes to get our exercise a walk with him. And um, there's one particular area that we walk in in our neighborhood. There's a street at the end of our neighborhood. Actually, it's the, it's, it's the entrance of our neighborhood that was, it, was pro, it is projected to one day connect to another neighborhood, but it doesn't. It stops. And there's just this right of way between houses. And there's a railroad track at the back. And so this long right-of-way, um, a couple of football fields long, is just kind of a, a green space between the backyards of two different neighborhoods. And so when we take our dog on a walk, we like to go all the way down there because it's just, it's just no man's land and we can kind of take him off his leash and let him run and, and enjoy in that particular area. And so we go there on a regular basis and it wasn't too long ago that we were there and, and uh, well, it was several months ago, we were walking through there and, and there was a head of lettuce in the middle of this, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, you look around like, how in the, it, 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 how did that get there? That's weird. You don't just go walking and see a head of, but there it was. It wasn't growing. I mean, it had been bought at a, at a store and there it was. And so we commented about that. And, and the next day we come back and that was gone, but there was a potato there. And I'm thinking, this is really weird. There's a potato. Since then, we have found eggplants and carrots, and, and we have found cabbage, and we, we, we found all these. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on? And the only thing I can think of is that one of these opposing neighborhoods that has the back fence are, are perhaps Buddhist or from another world religion. And they believe that maybe that they need to appease the gods, that, that in that back area, it might open the door for some evil to come into my house. And so I'm going to offer something there to appease them, to, to try to keep, if, if you go to Thailand today, you'll find that people have in their yard little spirit houses and, and they offer all kinds of, uh, uh, of sacrifices out there to keep the evil away from them. Listen, every world religion, every Every God may offer some kind of help in today, but none of them offer hope to deal with our sins past. And so Micah comes on the scene to say, who is like this God? Let's compare gods. Who's like this one? Who offers forgiveness? Who says to you, I will restore you to right fellowship? Who pardons? The word pardon that he uses there is an interesting word. It literally means to lift a burden. It means that I am weighted down and he lifts suddenly a burden from me. And he says, who pardons my iniquity. The word iniquity literally refers to a crooked nature. It talks about that crooked nature, that sin nature deep within me. Not necessarily what I do, but that sin nature that comprises of who I am that separates me from God. David understood that. Because he writes in Psalm 20 or in Psalm 32, how blessed, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And in where the spirit 
I have to put my glasses on. How blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says something all of us know. How amazing is it that our transgressions are forgiven? How incredible is it that, that God can forgive me for what I have done and give me a new beginning? It, it kind of reminds me of that newer version of amazing grace. How sweet the sound my chains are gone connected to that amazing grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. You see, the one thing that unites us as children of God is that we have been forgiven. We have been set free. We know what it is to have a burden of our sin lifted. We know what it is to carry that, don't we? David would say in another place, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy on me. My vitality was drained away as with the fervor heat of summer. What he is ultimately saying is guilt kills us, doesn't it? There have been some of you that have carried the guilt of something you've done from your childhood and it still haunts you. And right now you struggle over something that you did, a mistake that you made, decision that you made. You are haunted by that sin. And you think you'll never be able to rise above it or get past it. You think God will never love you. And so Micah comes on the scene to say, I want to tell you, it's not, a, it's not just important that you know God. You need to know this about God. He will forgive your sin. He will pardon you. He will lift that burden off your shoulder. And when we've had that burden lifted, it changes us. And it unites us. But not only does he tell us that he is a God of forgiveness, he tells us that he is a God of power. He can redeem. He can restore. He can remove the guilt that we carry around with us. In the text before us, it says, he will again have compassion on us and will tread our iniquities underfoot and will cast all their sin into the depths of the sea. Now, there's two things I want you to notice about that verse. First, I want you to notice it gives us a violent picture. He is ultimately saying this, God will stomp your iniquity. He will step on your sin. He will stomp your sin. Listen, what he is ultimately saying is this, God will bring your sin under submission. And you know what he says? When he forgives you, he declares that you are no longer defined by your sin. You're not defined by your past anymore. We live in a world today that says once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a drug addict, always a drug addict. And God says, uh-uh. I will stomp your sin in the ground and you are no longer defined by that sin. I will pardon you. I will lift that burden off your shoulder. And I will give you a new life and a new beginning. I will redeem you. We use the word iniquity. That word iniquity means crooked nature. He is ultimately saying what you are at the core that separates you from God. I will do a work in your heart through salvation, bringing that under submission so that that does not rule you anymore. It does not define you anymore. That's what makes us one, isn't it? 
We have all been transformed by the power of God's grace. Every one of us in this room who have received Jesus as our Savior have been pardoned. God has removed our sin. He has reached into our past and told us that we're not defined by that anymore. And we don't have to carry that stigma. We don't have to carry that name. And it doesn't matter what the world says about it. What, what, what matters is what he has done for us. And, and as a result of that, he gives us the power. And, and we, we, we're transformed by his power. And we walk in his power. And we live in his power and his love. And he then does this. Get this. He says, and, I, and he will take our sin and he will cast it into the depths of the sea. You know, you know what, in, in another place in the Bible, it says it this way, I will remember their sin no more. In another place in the Bible, it says, I will cast it into the depths of the sea to remember it no more. I want to tell you something. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation. And you need to understand this. Because many of you are living under the condemnation of your sin. The reason you are walking around with guilt is because you can't let go of something that has happened in your past. Let me tell you something. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. When you come to God, listen, this is what conviction is. When you sin, God's Holy Spirit will point it out to you. God will convict you of sin. Now, he does that for, for one primary reason, so that you will repent of that sin, turn from that sin to God. And if you will, when the Holy Spirit convicts you, if you will repent and say, God, I, I am sorry, that is sin, and I turn from my sin to you, God forgives us. And the Bible says when he forgives us and when he lifts that pardon, he throws it into the sea, never to remind. He doesn't beat you over the head with your past sin. He doesn't tell you you're awful and no good. No, if you're hearing that voice, that is condemnation. Condemnation comes from Satan. You see, the moment God convicts us of our sin and we turn from our sin to him, he forgives us and forgets it and it's gone. But we've got an enemy who sits on our shoulder and says, whoa, 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 time out. That's not gone. That's who you are. You'll never get away from that. You'll never get beyond that. That's who you are and you, you can't escape that. And he will continue to beat you up. And that's the reason some of you come to God every single day begging God to forgive you for the same thing. Every day, God, forgive me. Something you did years ago. And you come to, and you, I want to tell you something. The first time you came to him and confessed it and turned from it, God said, done, finished, forgotten. And you're not defined by that anymore. And you don't have to live that way anymore. But you listen to the other voice of the enemy who said, no, 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 wait a minute. No, that is the, that, that's who you are. You continue to fight a battle of condemnation and God's forgiven you. And, and, and when you confess your sin to it, you know what he's saying? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even remember that event. You're still haunted by something that I forgave you for years and years ago. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. And we are not in, under condemnation in Christ. We are forgiven. And when we understand that, do you recognize that's what brings us together? When we know that we are pardoned, our sin debt has been forgiven. God has washed us. He has redeemed us. He has restored us. Then our lives change. Well, the final thing that he mentions to us is this. 
Not only is he a God of pardon and, and, and a God of power, he's a God of promise. In that last verse, he says he is faithful and, and, and you, you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. That phrase from the days of old literally means eternity. This, this verse speaks of God's faithfulness, and, and this is what he is saying. Even if Abraham dies, God's promises don't. And even when Jacob dies, God remains faithful. You see, earlier in this book, Micah had talked about the judgment of God and the captivity that they had experienced. And as a result about, of his speaking of that, the people were able to look around and see their current condition. And they were simply saying to themselves, God, where are you in all of this? Do you even care? Are you there? Everything seems to be falling apart, but this is what he is saying to us. Even when everything in our life is falling apart, he's still faithful. His promises are still true. It is imperative for us to know this and live this way, and this is what unites us. It doesn't make any difference what happens in the world and the political climate, and I don't care if gasoline goes to $10 a gallon. God is still faithful. And when we know that, and when we live in his pardon, and we live in his power, and we live in an understanding of his promise, it makes us different than everybody else in the world, and it makes us alike. We're joined together as a family. And no, for the rest of the world to look and say, why is it that you guys can be positive and understanding with regard to all that is going on? Because we know our God, and who is like our God because we know his pardon and his power and his promise, we're different. Because we've been forgiven, we can forgive. Because we are loved, we're able to love. Because we know mercy, we can give it. Because we've been set free, we're joyful. We're thankful. We're happy. We're full of hope. And we have purpose. One body. All of us are different. But all of us are important and each have a place. One spirit in us and through us. One hope to stand in his glory. One Lord. The same boss. The same marching orders. We live the same way because he tells us to one faith and that faith is in Christ alone, not in ourselves. One baptism so that we are so immersed in him that we live in a world to spill his goodness everywhere. And one God who is our father so that we bear a family resemblance. There's an interesting story about a, a guy by the name of Fred Craddock. He told this story years ago. He was a pastor and he was traveling in Tennessee and he went to this little restaurant, this little greasy spoon restaurant in a 
small town in Tennessee. And he was eating breakfast and he says, I couldn't help but notice there was an elderly gentleman, old guy, that um, everybody knew, obviously. And, and he was in that little restaurant and he was just making his way from table to table, carrying on a conversation with everyone that was there. And he said, I was sitting at the table and I didn't really particularly want to have a conversation with someone, but I recognized that eventually he's kind of going to make his way to my table. And sure enough, he did. The old gentleman walks up and asks him who he was and what he was doing, where he was going, where he'd come from, those kinds of things. And, and Fred mentioned to him that he was a pastor. And when he told him he was a pastor, the old gentleman grabbed a chair and sat down and said, well, I got a preacher story for you. He said, in these parts, there was a little boy who was born to a single mom and they were extremely poor. Now, that was back in the day when being born to a single mom wasn't, wasn't accepted. In fact, he was referred to in those days as an illegitimate child. And um, he and his mom went through a lot. Nobody in town really wanted to have anything to do with him. In fact, sometimes they'd walk down the street and people would literally cross the street to walk on the other side to avoid them. That little boy got in a whole lot of fights at school by people asking him, who's your daddy? And um, he didn't have many friends. But he used to love to go to church. He said he liked that little church because he, he, he would go there and he, he felt warmth. And when the preacher talked, it was, it was about something that, that he was fascinated by. But he would always come in late and always leave early so that he wouldn't have to come in contact with anybody. And one day he went to church and there was a new preacher. And he liked him. I mean, he just made the Bible come alive. He could really understand what he was talking about. But at the end of the service, he threw a curve. Because at the end of the service, and because it was his first day, he didn't end the way he always did. He stopped and said, now what I'm going to do is go to the back of the church and I'm going to stand there and I'm going to greet everybody as they leave. And he said, and all of a sudden I couldn't leave early and I was trapped and I'm right in the middle of a crowd and I didn't want to be there, or this kid didn't want to be there. And he says, so he said, uh, it came time, this kid walks up to the pastor, and the pastor looks down at him, doesn't know who the kid is, and says to him, son, who's your dad? He said, everything got quiet, and all eyes were on him at that moment. And the preacher realized, I don't know what's going on, but I didn't say the right thing. So he responded by saying this, wait a minute, I know you. And he reached down and grabbed the chin of the little boy and he held it up toward himself and he says, I, I know you, I see the family resemblance. You are the child of God, God's your father. And he said, you know what? From that moment forward, that little boy's life was changed. And when anybody would ask him from that moment forward, who is your dad, I would always say, God is my father, because that story was about me. He got up and left, and Fred got up, paid his bill, and started to walk out and said to the lady at the cash register, do you know who that guy is? And she said, everybody knows who he is. That's Ben Hooper. He was once governor of the state of Tennessee. You see, there is something that unites us. It's an understanding of who he is. Because we know his 
pardon because we know his power, because we know his promises. We have all that in common and he is God and Father and we share a family resemblance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message you've given us today, the opportunity to respond to its truth. There are some in this room today that are still carrying around sin that you have forgiven years ago. And I pray that somehow in this moment they would come to recognize who you are so they can let go of that sin once and for all. There's no condemnation in you. And we can live the victorious life that you have called us to. And if there's one here who's never accepted you as Savior, today is the day of forgiveness and opportunity of new life for them. And I pray that today they would receive you as Savior and Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us. Thank you.